Hello and welcome to The Intersection of Things, a podcast about technology and how it's changing our lives from an intersectional feminist perspective. I am Mariana Ramos Capello. And I'm Ruth Kustik Deal. And hi, what are we talking about this week, Ruth? Today, we're talking about resilience and technology. Yeah, I mean, you know, listeners, a lot of us listening and making this podcast live in cities in North America, Europe, and we're used to a certain you know, if unequal, standard of access to the internet and other communication technologies, you know, like cell phones and whatnot. Uh, but what happens when disaster hits? What happens when it all goes down? Yeah, think about the last time that the power went out, that you couldn't use the internet, or the battery on your phone went dead when you were trying to find a friend in a museum, not a personal anecdote at all. And think back to temporary nature-based hindrances like being snowed in or preparing for low-level flooding. Or consider when those disasters hit in a much more devastating way from bigger events like Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico or large magnitude earthquakes in Mexico. Yep. So, you know, disaster and resilience kind of come hand in hand. But to talk about that, we do have a very kick-ass guest. Um, her name is Gruchesca Quiroz, and she has done a lot of learning and thinking and work around resilience, community resilience, and technology. So shall we go to the interview? Shall we go to the interview? <laughs> yeah, let's go there right now. <laughs> no, wait, that's too abrupt. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. Hi, crew. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for the invite. <laughs> do you mind by just kicking us off with introducing yourself? Sure thing. My name is Cruchesca Quiroz Ornedo. Um, I am a queer Afrotaina technologist, among many other things, interested in knowledge sharing uh, with as many people as possible. And um, I was born in Boriquen, which is uh, the pre-colonial name for the island most people know as Puerto Rico. Cool. And let's start talking about, um, well, the internet and your your resilience project. Can you tell us a little bit about the project that you did with the Digital Justice Lab? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, as you know, they uh, were the kind of the organizers, logistics people for the uh, Digital Rights Community Grant program and um, the grant I received was for a, an idea um, that involved putting together basically assembling two portable network kits and uh, using those as part uh, of the meshing resilient communities workshop which um, I did the test drive in Vancouver and will be running as often as possible there and in any other place where people are interested. No. I was going to say, let's yeah. uh, let's like tape it back like one moment and yes. say for people listening, one, what's a portable network kit? What's that for? What is it? What does it look like? Um, okay, so yeah, the, the portable network kits are basically a container, like a suitcase or an art bin that includes a handful of um, uh, pieces of, of hardware including a Raspberry Pi that serves as a server for the network, a battery pack, a router, an antenna, in the case of the ones that I build, a omnidirectional antenna, which means that it sends a signal all around the antenna. And um, those pieces are, again, uh, put together, assembled, 
and configure to provide services to the users, meaning anybody that logs in to the network. One really cool thing about the those portable kits is that they work both connected to the internet through via an Ethernet cable. So then anybody that logs in has access to the internet and also the services in the in the network. And it also has what it's very appropriately known as the island mode, <laughs> where all of the, the users that log into the server um, are able to solely use the, the services provided. There's no link to the internet. Um, so for some people that, I don't know, might work in like big companies and all, it's kind of like, a, or have heard of the term, it's somewhat like an intranet, if you would, where there's, by services, I mean, um, useful things that can be do, done uh, in the server, in the network, la, that being um, writing documents with Etherpad, uh, real-time chatting with HackChat, um, web development uh, with a standalone version of WordPress, and also we got um, a Surfer, which is a, an app for uh, downloading and uh, uploading files for the file sharing. So you basically um, have your own little internet with yes. well, basically everything that you use from chats to websites to blogs to, did you mention also like spreadsheets? Oh no, uh, file sharing, uh, stuff like that. Yeah, and the and the other pad, which allows just to, to um, write documents in real time with uh, collaborations or by yourself. Um, uh, and I'm curious, what prompted you to do this work or to pick this technology over other technologies? Well, the the first question or the first answer, why this project? To me, beyond it being very interesting, it also brought about the thought of, um, again, community resilience and what means of communications would be very helpful in the case of being in a situation where we're disconnected or unable to communicate with each other via cell phones um, or via the internet. And um, as you probably know, the, um, the hurricanes that went over the island of Puerto Rico and many other islands in the Caribbean um, a couple of years ago had a huge impact on the infrastructure um, that was already in precarious conditions, but and telecommunications were down. Only one radio station uh, managed to stay uh, broadcasting, and um, there was a need for a means of communication amongst people. And I saw, or I have seen mesh networks because of a handful of its features as something that's quite handy and potentially uh, very useful when it comes to situations like that. And also uh, with the workshops as a tool to introduce people to how the internet works, how different hardware works, and how, um, I guess in a way, demystify this whole idea of how, how much of an abstract cloud the internet is. If knowledge is power, then <laughs> you're spreading a little bit of knowledge because then the powers that be don't have the magic under their control. Uh, what were you saying, Ruth? Yep. I was just going to say, just to sort of check I've got this right. So portable yeah. network kits are a yeah. way you can build a communications network. So you mm -hmm. can build a kind of internet that connects with one another that's called a mesh network. And that's a kind of internet that doesn't rely on an outside like corporate run internet infrastructure, correct? 
Um, correct in many aspects, and I'll expand in some others just to make that clear. Um, the mesh networks at itself, by itself or in itself, it's a, a decentralized uh, community-wide network that it's made out of different nodes. It's what they're called. So a portable network kit actually would work as a node. The, the node, uh, when like I turn on the kit and plug it in, yes, it can work by itself. However, it would not be considered a mesh network, a combination of those nodes, either them being a, a standalone ones in a building or in a house or whatever, um, in a car, if you would, a, or in a suitcase, those would be considered nodes, and those together, linked together, would make up a mesh. Uh-huh. So if you have workshops, everybody can have their own little node, and when it's needed, then all the yes. nodes, like, bloom, go active or online or whatever, go live, and then you have the mesh. Exactly, yeah. And uh, that's the reason why I built two of the kids so I could show how they connect mm -hmm. with each other. Um, and also, now that you mention it, that, that's one of the, the fact that all of those nodes are linked together. It's one of the, the bits that bring a really important feature of mesh networks to work and makes it work, which is that it, you're having all of this transfer of data from node to node as people are using the network. And then if something happens and one of the nodes go down, either because of the power goes down, the antenna is uh, knocked down or whatever happens, what the mesh networks and its configuration is able to do, it's what's called or is known as self-healing. And it reroutes the data that's trying to go through that node that went down and reroutes it through other nodes. Thanks. That actually makes a lot more sense now. Okay, good. <laughs> um, so I, listeners, just so you know, FYI, no, I attended one of your um, uh, of your workshops and you spent some time grounding this technology on the concept of resilience and community resilience. So I just wanted to ask, mm -hmm. what's, what's community resilience for you? Um, for me, yeah, community, re okay, for me, resilience in itself involves how we prepare, adapt, and apply um, our knowledge in order to survive and thrive during and after um, an adverse event. And that adverse event, obviously, it, it, it varies with context and geography and all of the things. Um, it could be a natural disaster. It could be a financial collapse in a, in a city or a country. It could be a war. And um, the sources of stress in those examples may be different. However, they seem to have a, a similar effect on people um, and the way that people, and if you want to put, put them together as a group, as the community bounces back or navigates through that uh, situation, it's quite similar as well. And um, in, in looking and researching about what other people think of community resilience, I found this article that was really interesting because it focused on the definition, not in them trying to define uh, resilience. Um, and one of the, the core elements that they mention that make um, 
a community resilience, it's communication, and it's one the the main uh, element that I focus on. And from there, I spread into seeing how then communication connects with the other elements. And I just I know that you have a resources section on your website for each episode, so. Um, I know you put the information there, but whoever it's listening and might not, yeah, for sure, uh, might not uh, have access later on to the website. The article is titled, What Do We Mean by Community Resilience? A Systematic Literature Review of How It is Defined in the Literature. And it was written by Patel, Rogers, Amlot, and Rubin. And those are just the last names because there's a lot of names attached to that, which is cool too. And uh, if I may, right quick, I'll just tell you the, the nine core elements. And this is just, I guess, um, important for me. So whenever you're building your own definition of resilience, this might be the core uh, elements that you might be thinking about. Uh, they include local knowledge, community networks and relationships, communication, health, governance and leadership, resources, economic involvement, investment, preparedness, and mental outlook. And one of the premises of the article of the the article is uh, how we use those elements as kind of guides to how we define resilience. And uh, very importantly, when it comes to legislation and preparedness uh, guides um, for a community resilience, uh, and also, you know, as you might know and expect with funding, uh, what's important to people, that's what they talk about, and that's how they define resilience. Mm. Communication yeah. for me is a big one um, in this case, for sure. You know, Maranello, it really reminds me of... Um that book that you've talked about with us with me before about um palaces for the people uh-huh yeah <laughs> yeah palaces for the people was or is a book uh what's the name of the author oh man i usually always have it around uh, also because it's a nice book to prop stuff up but it's a really nice book to read too <laughs> um it's a book that basically discusses several case studies but one of them the one that comes to mind is uh about a heat wave in Chicago and the author looked at mortality rates etc and found not what you would think which is like obviously richer communities or people with more resources would survive and people or communities with uh, less resources or fewer resources would not that was obviously there in the data but what he found was that there was something else because there were communities that, that were super under-resourced, but did better or almost as well as communities with really good resources. And when he started mm. looking at what was the the factor that both of those communities had, yeah, he took, talks about the social infrastructure, that's like the term, uh, mm -hmm. which is basically all of the infrastructures, be it like a library or um, the streets or, yeah, like basically technology that allows people to look at each other and see, like just to literally see one another check on one another and build that like mesh of social connection um mm -hmm. so basically literally like who checks on older people who checks on a house you know like so yeah that was uh that was kind of like the premise of palaces for the people and palaces for the people in that book end up being things like libraries and stuff like that but yeah nice <laughs> that's well and that's 
reminds me also of um, when the, um, there was also the, the couple of years ago or three years ago when it happened, the hurricane that also hit New York and there was like massive flooding and a lot of the networks and communications went down. There was the small community, the Red Hook community that had a mesh network and their network continued working. So eventually um, the U.S. government and I think it was FEMA, they increased the signal for that neighborhood and for that network. So the police and rescue people were also able to use it because they were tweeting out information. They were sharing photos and, and all that. So it's definitely, yeah, it it's really important to, to look at that side because like you said, it's not just um, the having money, but it's also how it's managing the the forward thinking that the community has and basically how resilient uh, in that in that sense it is. And if this can happen in New York, it kind of tells you how precarious the infrastructure for like emergencies and communication mm-hmm. infrastructure for emergencies is, even in, oh, yeah. in places that you or people would consider first world or like very rich cities. Yeah, I, I think about that often about Vancouver. Oh, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. you know, there's 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 snow and rain and all of a sudden the city stops in one way or another. Yeah. So in terms of an earthquake or a tsunami that everybody talks about, it's waiting for. Um, how is that going to be managed? A, yeah. That's a big question mark. Or forest fires. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And and also climate change is real. So Yes, indeed. When people are like, Oh well, you know, we don't get hurricanes here. That's like a yet. temporary state, I'm afraid. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think also uh, when it comes to that you know, the the work that a community does to support itself, that's when it's very important for members of the community to be the leaders and to be actively involved in all of the planning you know and not just uh in terms of dictating how it's going to happen but um in the case of say mesh networks and technology to be active participants and share that knowledge because it just parallels the mesh network idea you know when a node goes down or a person gets sick, or that one person that knows how to turn on the generator is not available, you know, who else is going to be able to do it? I was thinking about that this morning. That's one of the things also that attracts me and interests me about mesh networks, that to me it parallels principles, if you would, of of how a community would work and can be efficient, just resilient and self-healing. I mean, I wanted to ask you what the role of technology is in building resilience. And obviously, in some ways, we're already talking about that because whether it's mesh networks or the the radio station that was the thing that stayed up when lots of other things went down, mm-hmm. you know, it does allow people to communicate. But at the same time, a lot of the technology that we use obviously comes embedded with the values of the people who create it and you know, from the military to big corporations like Google and Facebook, a lot of the tech that we use in our day-to-day lives really like come with capitalist or colonialist ideas. Mm-hmm. And to quote Audre Lord, can the master's tool demolish the master's house? <laughs> Cruel. <laughs> how do you respond to how do you respond to Audre Lord? <laughs> <laughs> yeah and we go uh, to you now yeah um, discuss <laughs> discuss 
Well, <laughs> um, okay. Let's let's go to uh, shout out to to other uh, lord. Yeah, other lord. <laughs> um, well, in terms of um, I guess that question of what's the role of technology in building resilience and um, eh, and also like this whole master's bit, the master's house. Um, I would say that in terms of doing the demolishing, it's a it's a yes and no answer for me, and with layers as you can expect. In the no part, let's just just be the not the party poopers, but the talking about the the reality as we have it right now. Um, with Google and Facebook, um, using those two examples as you mentioned, there's that reality that there's very deep roots in our daily lives and social lives that they have basically taken in and no, I don't want to use the word mesh because mesh is cool. They, they have kind of gotten into our lives um, in many ways. And it, I think that it really has taken the side of, of how much we're dependent on, on things that are easy. And uh, I think that it's basically is built, is built with corporations. There have been a monopoly and say nonprofit organizations, say individuals, we have utilized their technology to the point that many people don't see a different way. Um, and for me, that's, that's troubling. I think that in that sense, trying to fight the not using Facebook anymore or not to use the cloud anymore or not to use the G Drive and Google Docs and all that um, may be a, uh, not a lost bottle, but one that I'd rather go in a different angle. And myself, like say, using Libre Software, um, finding other ways of um, share information and also to to share with people even what the concept of a cloud is and that the internet is not a cloud you know and that there are cables underwater that are the ones that connect the computers and the data goes through them you know I think that in that sense the demolishing could start to happen um, and demystifying, like you said, Marianela, this whole like abstract concept of like the internet being the the it of of all things. With the yes and how this whole house can be demolished, I say yes because there are people and there are groups that are working on it that are taking away from this whole idea that uh, the Googles and the Facebooks of the world are the only solution. Groups like, I don't know, like say Altermundi that are doing things like the Libre Router and giving away uh, the schematics for a router that you can build yourself. You know, the Toronto Mesh, that's a, an individual ran group that is building a mesh network in Toronto and up to the I think it was earlier this year when I contact them they still not connected to the internet they're just building a mesh network straight out with nodes built and put together by individuals in other places like decentralized networks in Oaxaca um, a community cell phone company, if you would, or service in Oaxaca as well. You know, those are all um, alternatives that might not make it to the news and might not be talked about, but they're definitely happening. The huge 
mesh network in in Spain, you know, in the side in the in the east and Barcelona and north that has been going on for years to the point that now they are Yes, they're in a way like an internet service provider, but they're technically a mesh network that ha is not corporate in the corporate sense. So I think that using technology to support and build resilience, it's definitely not something that's a good idea, but something that's already happening and pushing for mesh networks and the portable network kits and sharing knowledge with people. I think that's another way to demolish that. Um, that master's house yeah and like for our listeners you know i think we've never been people who complain or criticize other people for using these kind of tools like for using any of these big companies because mm -hmm. that well they have a monopoly and they make it convenient and they make it attractive and it's where all your friends are and all of these things like there's a reason people use it and mm -hmm. when people start pointing the finger at users and saying like oh well why haven't you quit facebook it's just like it's not it's not on us it is mm -hmm. on the companies to make ethical decisions and to to be better you know rather than just kind of like looking at the people who are using the tool and saying well you know why don't you all just leave it's like well we know why we don't leave because mm -hmm. they've created like a system where we're kind of trapped in there for various reasons and especially with facebook when it becomes your login for so many places like mm -hmm. we are quite tied in to them and yeah so no no finger pointing here well, they've, they've, yeah, made, no, no. they've made themselves indispensable in so many ways mm -hmm. um so like i like what you mentioned ruth about like not pointing fingers at individual users on one side and also like holding those corporations you know to account to make um, mm -hmm. ethical decisions on the other and then the middle part of it which is like workplaces they do have a choice yes. you know um medical institutions they do have a choice on what technology mm -hmm. they use uh, mm -hmm. i mean I'm pretty sure it's not as, as schools. Free. Schools, yeah, they do yeah. have a choice. On they might be pressured to make some choices because again, monopolies are real, and mm -hmm. you know, every time there's a lot of money on the line, there's a lot of pressure and threats, and it trickles down. Yeah, you know, because yeah. it's uh, if you want, you're uh, even applying for a job or you're in a job situation where you have to use Slack. Like you have to use the G drive yeah. and you have to have a Gmail account. Yeah. What, what, you know, you can navigate other ways, but at the same time, that's yeah. what's required of you. I think that, that definitely it's um, up to keeping accountable those, those companies and not just the companies. I think that it starts also from, from the school, like the attaching ethics to technology um in education as well that's yeah. that's kind of important you know um there's there's other things that are pushed um on us through the school system i think that like it is like they say doing no harm and you know being a good person that thinks about privacy and security of others you know might be a thing yeah. or it is yeah. a thing wasn't there like a the oath going around twitter ruth about uh, how did the hippocratic oh yeah people were talking about doing some kind of hippocratic oath for technology companies hmm. which has its own problems and i kind of agree with uh good good old i think frank pascale the academic was saying how a lot of this stuff you can't just codify into a list 
Mm-hmm. Like you can't just define the ethics for how you build computers into like a thing that you sign the bottom of. It mm-hmm. has to be something that is just about the way you work and the way you think about things and an understanding of like quite complex things like inclusion and consent and mm-hmm. you know y- y- you can't just sign a piece of paper and be like cool well I've done ethics now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, yeah. And all of this conversation also reminds me of um, I saw it again on Twitter. They were linking an article that was written or published an interview in 1985, I think, uh, by basically this MIT prof, the name Joseph Weizenbaum. That guy basically was making the argument for how computers are like the most quote-unquote conservative piece of technology that was ever created because it just brought the idea of having technological solutions to social problems. And I think the example that was uh, brought up in in that article was basically banks. In in the 80s, you know, banking was growing so fast that the amount of information uh, that you needed to handle required eventually a fragmentation and decentralization of the banking system. Because it was like your community would have your bank because there's no way that a bank in like California would be able to manage someone in New York. I mean, it, it, it was possible. But, you know, at the volume that the, the communities were growing, that was going to be mm-hmm. really hard. Enter the computer, and all of a sudden, there is a technology that, that allows that re-centralization. Uh, now, a bank in New York can have control over many banks all over the place, all over the country. And that social piece of the puzzle was kind of lost, right? Instead of figuring out ways in which communities would have their own banking system and what that would imply. Shout out mm-hmm. to Killer Mike with like banking local. Um, Killer Mike. Yeah, on, on that same, like the other side of the coin. Um, mm-hmm. All of this also makes me think about technological disobedience and just ways in which people use the current technologies, the current tools mm-hmm. to kind of turn it around. Yeah. Will you, do you think mesh would be considered technological disobedience? Well, you know, like the technology in itself wouldn't necessarily be considered such mm-hmm. um, because you have, you know, corporations and like uh, telecommunications companies like Shaw and Telus setting up mesh networks. Here in Canada. Right? Here in Canada uh, for the sake of uh, supporting this whole idea of uh, smart cities. And now what Vancouver and perhaps other places as well. I'm not familiar with other places, but um, they're they're coining as uh, smart tourism. You know, they're setting up a mesh network that's free for tourists and I guess whoever else is around. Um, and they're focusing it or they're they're setting it up. It's been set up in uh, downtown the downtown area and Gastown as well. Um, I'm not sure if the plan is also to to have it in other areas farther into Vancouver, but um, you know when it comes to that, they're not they're not being disobedient. They're being trendy and they're being great and they're adding to the value of the life in Vancouver yeah. and the experience of visiting the city. Now, if you have a mesh network in the, in a community that maybe. Um, outspoken about what's happening in the country or that are using their mesh network to share information about what mining companies are doing in their town or to um, share information about marches and strikes and other things, 
then yeah, that would be considered disobedient, but not the technology in itself, the people that are using it. Mm-hmm. And also by definition or by, I guess, the, the way that the dynamic of using that word and other terms, it's defined by the people that benefit from it. If the government or a corporation is benefiting from it in one way or another, they're not being disobedient. They're being helpful and they're contributing. They're being disruptive or innovative. Exactly. And they're being visionaries as well, right? Oh um, <laughs> however, if, uh, if, it's, if it goes in a different route and they're not the ones benefiting, then um, we become or we are labeled as disobedient. You know, there's um, a lot to say for technologies that have been used and developed by individuals to support, say, indigenous communities around the world. I know of one um, called Mapio. It's basically a mapping app that uses GPS to to pinpoint specific uh, geographic points. And communities have been able to make very detailed maps of their land because mining companies and governments in those countries are presenting the maps in a different way. Um, Mm. Because, you know, also because of the limitations of technologies, if you're mapping from a satellite or from above, the signal may not go through a forest because there's a lot of water and signals are very weak. Uh, or non-existent going through water, right? So if you have an indigenous community in their land mapping their area, you're going to see other water sources. You're going to see other uh, fauna, flora that will definitely get affected by, in this case, uh, the, the work or the destruction that mining has in communities. So those people would be considered disruptive and disobedient, regardless of what is going to happen and the destruction that will come to their community, yeah. right? But who's yeah. making the profit off of that? Shout out to uh, Foucault again, because Foucault always comes into the podcast in ghost form for talking about <laughs> obedience and punishment, mm-hmm. but it always comes back. <laughs> it always comes back to that, you know. And, and I was just <laughs> literally saying this week, but I feel like more people in my life are talking about Foucault this week than ever when I was doing him at university. <laughs> it's just mm-hmm. like everyone's talking about like education, surveillance in schools, mm-hmm. prisons, and everyone's just like, oh, that Foucault, so relevant. Mm-hmm. And and just another thing added to that is like, you know, when it comes back to the mesh networks and communication, like decentralizing communication uh, networks, which is at the root of the idea of mesh networks, Yes, that can be seen as technological disobedience, um, again, as defined by those trying to maintain control over others. So, yeah, Yeah. the technology will probably not be labeled as such. The people using it are the ones that will, and the the ones that would get punished in one way or another because of of that. Well, because under the same framework and way of thinking, technology is neutral which mm-hmm. I disagree with. Mm-hmm. But yeah, because kind people of, make it, technology, so yeah, that's yeah, not neutral. So. <laughs> um, I think I was going to say something about within like this broader framework about like centralization that in so many places, you know, tech companies um, that provide like internet and telecommunications, you know, they're only providing those communications in areas where they think they can make money from mm-hmm. them. 
So exactly. that kind of like is a big background problem to having a few companies, to having it be like corporate run internet and why there are places that I think people will be surprised to hear they don't have internet and think like, oh gosh, even now. But so often it's because those companies just say, mm, it's not it's not worth it. Like we won't mm-hmm. make enough money, mm-hmm. so we won't invest. Exactly. That is the case. Uh, one of the examples that I've given to people that they didn't think about was in Detroit, where if I remember the stats correctly, 40% of the population of Detroit has very slow internet and about 60% have no access to the internet at all. Mm-hmm. I might be mistaken the yeah. two percentages, but I know one was 60, one was 40. And it's still a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. And it just... It basically, without the stats, it pans down to a huge sector of the population in Detroit, most of them in areas that are predominantly um, Latin American and Black or African American, don't have access to the internet. Uh, And that's where initiatives have come about, where mesh networks have started. And, you know, and it was very heartbreaking to me, maybe, to see how you know, of those main access points in North America where the cables come from the water and they go and there's like the the centers where corporations and ISPs logged in to have access to the internet. There's a huge one very close to Detroit. You know, there's somebody, and I don't recall his name, that started this uh, fiber optic company and they made a huge ring in the downtown area of Detroit, you know, where people can afford to move back and to buy and to gentrify that area. And at the same time, there's people and there's young people that are going to a fast food restaurant or somewhere in the middle of the street to be able to access internet. Yeah, Yeah. under this framework, it's very obvious that progress is never the goal. It's always profit and progress is like a side effect if it happens. Mm -hmm. But like you would only just invest in places where you know you're going to get your money back with profits. And when that's the incentive or that's the main goal, expanding access and rights and all of that is just the marketing part of that. It's not actually the end point. Yeah. Mm Exactly. What a cheery conversation. <laughs> Yay. Yeah. However, like you, you, you can cheer it up because, you know, we, we talk about the people that are working exactly. on alternatives, yeah. you yeah. know, like, and for me, um, you know, another example of like a, a call in, it also happened reading um, the 2600 magazine. If you have ever heard of that one, they actually had an article written by EFF where there was, they were calling in um, hackers and technologists and basically saying, yo, like you have all this knowledge, you're really stellar at what you do, how are you contributing to the community? Mm. You know, if you share your knowledge, you're going to have more people, not just to converse with, but you're going to have an impact on things that you're not happy with, like capitalism, like Google and Facebook, you know, like how corporations are taking, quote unquote, taking over, you know, you're sharing knowledge for other members of the community to be interested and also contributing to this resilience and to this other way and mm-hmm. another alternative on how to work it. So there is there are many lights at the end of the tunnels and there's many tunnels and there's many layers. I think this as much as we can spread the word and definitely share the knowledge, it's where we're going to be able to to address 
all of these issues. Yeah. Which is what you're doing. This, which is awesome. Thank you. Yes, that's that's one of my one of my main main goals. I think that it's um, at a personal level. You know, not just uh, indigenous and First Nations people or my ancestors from Africa or many other people, you know, like knowledge sharing, just like storytelling. It's a way of meshing uh, our communities and building this resilience that basically that's the reason why in many ways we're still here um, and we're still, we're still present and we're still raising our voices. So yeah, that's part of what I feel. It's my duty and my place in the community. Yeah. 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 That basically answers like what I was going to ask later on about <laughs> how there's like this big element of autonomy and like distributed power when communities know how to fend for themselves, you know, and use the technologies that are available, to survive mm -hmm. and thrive, not only during disasters, like climate based disasters, but like bigger social disasters, like colonization and stuff like that. So, yeah, I like that the ripple effects of building a community or being building community resilience are yeah. go beyond um, just the immediate emergency kind of just ripples out. Yeah. Know? Yeah. yeah. It's it's um it's a sense of urgency I think that uh, sometimes it gets overlooked. But I think that with all the talk about climate change, all the all the things that we're seeing with that, it builds this um kind of the, the momentum and like you said, like the ripple effect of like we that there's something that needs to be done. Things happen. I was about to curse. Sorry. Uh, things Shit happen. Shit. Okay. Thank you. Um, Cursing's allowed here. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Cool. 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 Um, so shit happens. We might not know right away how to fix it, but we know that we have tools. We know that we can rely on ourselves and on each other. You know, that we have, I guess you can say, like that critical thinking and thinking about the box and having gathered not just the material tools, but like the inside tools and inner resilience. It's something that goes hand in hand. Mm -hmm. um, and I think for me... It, that part of communication again, that peace and that core element of resilience is so important um, because it's not just about how we communicate with each other, but what we communicate with each other. Young people are sharing knowledge with elders. Elders are sharing knowledge on how to think about ethics with with the youth. I think that that's like meshing. Mm -hmm. It's what's happening. So yeah, that's that's cool. what we're here for. <laughs> Thank you so much for talking with us about all of this stuff. I was so interesting. I guess the uh, the important thing is what's uh, so what's next for your project and where can people find out more about this stuff? Um, well, right now, uh, what's next for me? It's um, uh, running more workshops um, in Vancouver. Hopefully, coming up soon before the end of the year and next year as well. Um, I'm also getting uh, more and more with um, Teresa Basilio with the uh, Resilient uh, Just Technologies, that program or project to bring the knowledge sharing and continue the knowledge sharing in Puerto Rico with the Portable Network Kids, with communication, telecommunications as well. And I hope to soon finish a program that that I'm working on being part of as a technology steward in indigenous communities 
when it comes to the design and deployment and maintenance of telecommunications and uh, community networks as well. Right now, where to find me? I have a Facebook account. Um, <laughs> actually, uh, the fastest way probably would be through email, and I'll I'll share that one with you. You can put it up on the on the website. If people yeah. are interested in uh, either checking out the the slides for the workshop um, and checking out other resources as well related to, to mesh networks, I'm happy to share those. That's awesome. I know we're running out of time because I always ask one question to every guest. That's my mm-hmm. quoted as my favorite question to ask. Um, okay. But like in a nutshell, crew. Cruchesca, mm-hmm. uh, what is your origin story? So you're doing all of this awesome stuff. Mm-hmm. If someone listens to this and like, oh, when I grow up, I want to be a crew. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck with that. Um, okay, origin story, uh, very quick. I've always been drawn to applying knowledge and everything that I've learned, I want to find ways to apply it in ways that are not necessarily the intended purposes. I think that right now, something that really called me and like was a kind of like a, not a slap on the face, but a wake up call for me in terms of, of sharing knowledge and what I want to put as intentions and work in the community was for me to think uh, of the portable networks, network kits as really cool. And like a really cool concept. And I was so excited because it's so totally cool. And I can get to play with all this technology. And it was Teresa actually that reminded me that it's not about it being cool. It's something that's necessary. And that opened for me another door. And a a big, not question mark, but it kind of guided how I think about it now. And how I think about technology. It's There are things that are necessary for us to thrive and survive and contribute to each other. So that's my origin story. Awesome. Contributing. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you so yes. much. Thank you for sharing all of this with us and with the listeners. Oh, thanks for the invite. We'll plug all of the plugs that you give us on the footnotes. Yeah. And people just start getting curious on this theme topic and tell us what you do for community resilience. That would be awesome. That would be pretty cool. Yeah. Thank Share you it so with much. me. It was so good to have you on the pod. Oh, thank you for inviting me. And I'm really happy to get to listen to all the episodes as often as they come. Yeah. Thank you so much for doing this and, uh, and contributing to our community in this and many other ways. Aww. Yeah, Crew is an amazing friend of the pod. So, you know, like <laughs> shout out to Crew for always supporting us. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Bloop. Well, that was a really awesome interview. Thank you, Crew, again for sharing all of this with us. Ruth, what did you learn this week? What are you taking with you? What What are you taking away? If I do the thing and say so many things, I think it's become a bit of uh, an intersection of things cliche. Yeah, take a shot every time we say so many things. You know, I think overall, I really like being reminded about how much people can take the technology into their own hands. I've not actually done any of these things, you know, building a portable network kit or even like building a portable radio. But I really love being reminded that actually you don't have to rely on big companies to create all this infrastructure and that there's so many opportunities out there to build your own stuff or to learn from people who are building it. I love the fact that 
there's a lot of these different projects you know it's not just this one but so many things that are like cooperatively owned internet or um yeah like the projects she was talking about in detroit there's like a lot of people doing really cool work and i think sometimes you know towards the end we're like oh god you know there's these like big monoliths and corporations and telecommunications companies that are controlling everything but like there's a lot of people doing stuff in response and saying like we can build resilience together and then that reminds me that you know fundamentally all of this is about community and talking about that point around connections and what makes resilience is being connected to each other so I guess there's also an inspiring point around just being more connected within your neighborhood and to the people around you and paying attention to who needs help and you know what help you could give people in a disaster so I think that's all quite encouraging yeah what about you what are you taking away <clears throat> so many things shot um <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think two main things. The first one that I really, really, really liked is um, in talking to Kruchewska, it felt really good to have this idea of demystifying technological knowledge. Like, just to say to make it accessible is, I don't think it does it justice because in my head, and I don't know if how widespread this is, but like, there is this mythology of the techie, usually a techie bro who knows a lot and you're not smart enough to understand what's going on on the internet or how it works or how your computer works. Yeah, and what Kruchewska is doing is just demystifying that and being like, no, all you need is access to the knowledge, someone who's willing to share it with you and break it down, and also someone who's willing to bring this to you and share it with you in a way that applies to your situation. And community resilience and the building of community resilience is one of those. So, I don't know, it, it just left me with a really good feeling, but also it's almost this, it's almost like this self-esteem at a community level. I'm like, we can do this. This is not only necessary, but you actually can do it. You should not depend on, you know, the tech bros, for example, and, you know, hashtag not all, but yes, most. That's one thing. And the other thing is what crew mentioned about cities and first world countries and stuff, how we have non-resilient cities. So usually we think about disaster in the context of like, well, of course, this small town that's remote or whatever, right? But very soon, and like you mentioned, with uh, global warming and other, uh, even, I mean, war, we are seeing that cities with all of the resources and all the infrastructure are still pretty uh, precarious in their systems of resilience and rebuilding. So, yeah, it made me think a lot about that. And I'm very curious to see policy or what plans or what community initiatives there are to mitigate this. So, yeah, it was a really cool yeah. interview. Yeah, it really was. And I think we're going to have a very rich amount of footnotes in the bottom for you to read more about these kind of projects and this work and all about the various projects that were mentioned in the interview. Yep, yep. Um, and again, listeners, if you are working on things like this or know of you know people we should add just let us know and on that note where can they let us know ruth you can email us at thingsintersect at gmail.com or you could even tweet at us at thingsintersect yeah and ruth if uh, they want to find you where can they find you i'm on twitter at nescient n-e-s-i-e-n-t and what about you marinella uh i am 
at Undazed and such. Oh yeah, an editor's note here. Uh, Kruczeska has asked us to give a shout out to the Resilient Communities Initiative at New America. Just a credit to them. The music in the podcast was by David Mark Hucklesby. This was uh, an episode uh, sponsored or you know made possible thanks to the grant from the Digital Justice Lab. So thank you to them. Shout out to them. Anything else? I think we're good. All right. Thank you, (laughs) listeners. And we'll see you, hear you, be in your ears, hanging out next time. Bye. Bye.